be seated. We're going to read a longer passage this morning, so we're going to sit down for this one. Jeremiah chapter 39 is where we're looking today. We're going to read through chapter 40, verse 12. And as you turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 39, just go ahead and apologize for all the butchering I'll do with names this morning. I may give you multiple pronunciations of the same name by the the time the morning's over, and that's okay. Just go ahead and prepare you. Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 1. This is God's word. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sar Azir of Samgar, Nebusar Sakim, the Rab Sarsis, Nergal Sar Azir, the Rab Mag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsarsis, Nergal, Sar-Azir, the Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Hikem, son of Shaphan, that he would take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard, Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid, but I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord." The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. He took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold... I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, 
and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it is good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think is right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Keriah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumath, the sons of Ephai, the Netophathite, Jezaniah, the son of Mekathite, they and their men. Gedaliah, the son of Hikem, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land, serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah the son of Hikem, son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you take now, and as we have sung and prayed, would you speak to us? Would you open our eyes to the wonderful things in your word? And would you instruct our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the culmination of everything Jeremiah has been prophesying, isn't it? It's a sad story because you know it's coming. Uh, you You know the history there that this is going to happen. But it's sad as you read the words of what could have been prevented. If the people had repented, this act of judgment would have been stopped. And even the warning given to Zedekiah, if he had obeyed the Lord after the Babylonians were already at the city gates and simply surrendered as God instructed him, he could have protected his life and that of his sons and his officials. And so it is the culmination of all that Jeremiah had been saying. All of this is now coming to pass. We've seen throughout our study the countless false prophets, the politicians, even the kings who not only denied and doubted what Jeremiah said, but they, they even said the very opposite. They, if Jeremiah said, God will do this, they would say, God won't do that. And over and over again. But just as God promised, everything is coming true. And now the army from the north is laying siege to the walls. And in the middle of July, 586 B.C., they make a breach in the wall that begins the end of Jerusalem at this period of history. Throughout our history, people have doubted, denied, questioned the Word of God. Last week, we considered the importance of it. We considered that it is clear for us. It is inerrant and instructive for us. It is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And today, I want us to see the assurance that we have from God's Word that what he says will come to pass. This is a testimony 
that what God promises will come true. It may not happen on the timetable that we want or expect. It may not happen in the way that we imagine or want it to happen. But all that He has spoken and promised will come to pass. It is true of judgment. It is true of deliverance. It is true of discipline. And it is true of blessing. The prophet's words are not fulfilled because Jeremiah figured it out, that he broke a code or, 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 or was some, in some way special. The, prophet's Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah's words were fulfilled because they were God's words. Jeremiah trusted the Lord. He spoke for the Lord in faith and he trusted Him. And likewise, the assurance that we have in God's word is tied to our faith in Him and what he has done, who he is and what he has done. The faith that we see in Jeremiah, even in Abed-Melech, is not because of what they accomplished, but who they trusted. And likewise, because we trust in the Lord, we can trust in his word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is true when we struggle, when we doubt what God's word says. The upside-down economy of the kingdom that says, love your enemies... Do good to those who persecute you, or consider the needs of others above your own. And we scratch our heads and we think, how does this even work? It's true when it comes to justice and our desire for vengeance when we're wronged, when the promise of God is that He will handle such matters. It is true when we see the prosperity of those who deny God, the pleasure that they seem to enjoy, and we think that there's real happiness in these things, even when God, in His Word, says otherwise. We can be assured that His Word stands, that all He has promised will come to fulfillment, that it is good and for our good, and that we can trust it because we trust Him. In the Old Testament, God continually pointed His people back to the Red Sea deliverance, to the story of the Exodus. He continually reminded them to look back to that as the, not just a reminder, but the proof that He was their God and He would deliver them, that He loved them, and that He had the power to accomplish His purposes. And for New Testament believers, we look back to the same events, to all the mighty acts of God. But we look especially at the cross. Because it is at the cross that we see most clearly not, not only God's love and justice, but His power over sin. And so if you are struggling in the doubt of God's word, whether you're doubting its promises, its commands, or even its truth, then look to the cross to see the matchless grace and love of our God in display. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's what I want us to have in mind as we look at this fulfillment today that we can be assured that God's word stands, that we can trust it because we trust him. So now looking in verse 1, we see the timing is first laid out, both of the beginning of the siege and then the day that the breach is made in the wall. This, this siege covers 30 months, two and a half years. And we have to remember that Nebuchadnezzar didn't set out to just go and take Jerusalem. God providentially oversaw this this quest for world dominance. The new world power, Persia, wanted to take over the world. And there was the fight. The Assyrians before them, the Egyptians, they were all vying for world power. And so God simply orchestrated all this through providence. And so when they came, they had lots of cities and towns and countries to deal with. And we remember the account of Egypt when they came up, or 
Babylonians thought they were coming up. And they left the city and the siege works at the city and left to go deal with them. And so there's this 30-month period, two and a half years, of the siege that lay against the city. 2 Kings 25, if you want to read a more detailed narrative, you can go to, to 2 Kings 25 or 2 Chronicles 36, and you'll see some, some, some more detail and some different uh, uh, aspects that are included. But what Jeremiah includes that's not in 2 Kings 25 is that uh, the account in verse 3 of these officials arriving into the city. This was the signal that Jerusalem was defeated when these princes, these officials marched into town. Horses, camels, I don't know what they were riding. But we read this as it all happened at once because that's the way our minds work and our Western thought, that it was all chronological and boom, 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 it happened. But there was probably quite a bit of time in between that initial breach of the city wall and the point at which the officials were riding through the town. But at whatever point they came through, it was the sign that they now dominated. They now ruled. And it was at this point that Zedekiah decides to take off and to run. Now, we can only imagine what was going through Zedekiah's head, but I would imagine that the words of Jeremiah were ringing in his ears as he denied every prophecy that Jeremiah put forth and every opportunity he had to repent, and he refused those very things and now was watching them all unfold. It was not only the prophecy against the city that it would be destroyed, but you remember in chapter 38, Jeremiah told Zedekiah that if he refused to surrender to the king of Babylon, he said to him, you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but you shall be seized by the king of Babylon. In other words, he would be coming face to face with Nebuchadnezzar, and that's what we see happen in verse 5. Now, the king of Babylon, it says that Nebuchadnezzar came with his army against Jerusalem. He, he's not with his army. Kings wouldn't necessarily do that. They would send their, their, their men ahead to do that. But they would often come into the region as the armies, develop, or, uh, as the armies progressed uh, through, through their world dominance. And so he's to the north in Riblah, uh, north of Jerusalem. And so as Zedekiah ran, the Chaldean army captured him, and they bring him to Riblah. And it is there that he experiences the horror of watching his son slaughtered before his very eyes, along with his officials. And then Zedekiah has his eyes gouged out. So the, the searing image of seeing children slain, uh, just the bloodbath that that picture would have been, was the last thing etched into his mind as he was then bound in chains, taken to Babylon, along with the other inhabitants of Israel, or, uh, Jerusalem to be uh, exiles now in Babylon. We hear that, read that the city was burned along with the palace, and it's not mentioned here, but I mentioned 2 Kings 25. Also, 2 Chronicles 36 uh, provides the detail that the, the temple was burned as well. So it's destroyed. The whole city's decimated. The, the sacred elements uh, in the temple are carried off to Babylon. Everything was ruined. But we're told that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left behind some of the poor and gave to them fields and vineyards. And it was interesting to read different people's thoughts on this. Some thought that here was a, an act of kindness on behalf of this you know, pagan ruler and, and official in, in his army. Uh, I don't think that it was tremendously... I mean, it may have been seen as an act of kindness, but I don't know that that's what motivated his heart. I mean, they're taking over the world. I think this was more strategic. I think that he recognized that by giving the impoverished who own nothing fields and vineyards, they would then be indebted to the Babylonians and thus less resistant to revolt. And they would then, of course, be producing in the land. So when the army continues on to go further, to go to Egypt or whatever, they have resources along the way that they can take from uh, those that they occupy. 
But God is going to use all of this. He doesn't waste any of it. Now, we're not told how Nebuchadnezzar knew about Jeremiah, but in verse 11, we just read that Nebuchadnezzar was aware of of Jeremiah. And this is likely due to the fact that he had intel officers that he would have sent ahead to go in as spies, to spy out the land, to be aware of what the threat was. And, you know, from our perspective, Jeremiah is the prophet of the Lord. He speaks for the Lord. But for a pagan political ruler, he just is trying to figure out what side are you on. And so because Jeremiah's message was surrender to the Babylonians, he was categorized as pro-Babylon. So that was his political party. And so the king, again, not because he's kind or good, but because of God's rule and providence over this, he shows kindness to Jeremiah without probably even knowing it. Take him, he says, look after him well and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. Why? Because he's our political ally. And so God providentially sees to it that Jeremiah receives this favor in a situation that, from a human perspective, would certainly have been full of fear and upheaval. If you think of the situation of an invading army coming into your city and taking over and all of the upheaval that would have been experienced, all of the chaos, uh, this was an incredible kindness that God showed to Jeremiah that he would would be treated so well. So he's, he's treated well. He remains with the people. He's not taken into exile. He's instead sent off to Gedaliah, who is going to soon become the governor of Judah. And then as we read on, and this is confusing because as we read on, we see it happen all over again, it seems, that somehow Jeremiah ended up back in captivity. And that is what happens. That somehow in all the upheaval and the chaos, he got grouped into one of these, these groups that was passing by, being carried off into exile. And we'll look at that in a minute. But one of the things that I want us to consider at this point is the stressors uh, that, 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 were, that had to be in Jeremiah's life at this time. That, again, all of the world was turned upside down. And while he was God's prophet and God revealed his message to him, Jeremiah was not omniscient. He didn't know everything, how it would happen, how it would unfold, what was coming next, even when his life would end. He didn't know what the future held. And so only what God revealed to him. And so what we see here is his continuance in faith to trust the Lord regardless of what the circumstances were in front of him. And this is what we're called to do when our lives are turned upside down. We can often wonder in times of upheaval, where is God? Does he love me? Is he going to deliver me from this? And we see throughout Scripture, not just in Jeremiah, but if we think of Paul, uh, wrote on this quite a bit, the, the, the keeping your eyes fixed on the Lord in faith. Our tendency is to look at our circumstances. But let me tell you something. Our position as children of God is not determined by our circumstances. Our position as children of God, what's happening around us, Our position is held in the hand of our Father. And He holds us firmly no matter what is happening, no matter what we see with our eyes. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. When we trust God by relying on his perfect word because we trust him, we can be assured that no matter what happens, he holds us in the palm of his hand. And Jeremiah is reminded of this once again and is a reminder to us. 
as well as we walk through the difficulties that we face in life. Now, when we come to verse 15, it's, it, it, as we read through it, you probably realized it sounded kind of out of place, and it seems out of place because it's this account with Ebed-Melech, who we met when he delivered or helped rescued uh, Jeremiah from the muddy cistern. And some have thought that this was an editorial mistake, that it got stuck here by accident. I don't think it's an accident that it's here. I think the Lord is seeing to it to make a very clear point about what is happening. Now, Ebed-Melech, again, is the one who rescued Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah is instructed to go to him, and he repeats the promise that the city is going to be destroyed, but then he is given a promise, and the Lord says to him, I will surely save you. And you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. The significance and why this is inserted here, the significance of this promise is is that Ebed-Melech is not saved because what he did, but because he trusted in the Lord. True faith, yes, leads to obedience. It produces good works. That was what Ebed-Melech did because he trusted the Lord but he was delivered by his faith. It's easy for us to confuse the blessings in our life as some kind of reward of God, that, that, uh, that we, we earned it, we deserved it. And we can say, certainly, that obedience does produce good fruit. But what about the times when we obey and we still suffer? Our trust must remain in our God through even injustices that we endure His word stands so that we can know that we will ultimately be delivered. We will be saved. But the emphasis here is on the faith in the one who delivers. We can admire Ebed-Melech for his faith, but ultimately our worship is to be drawn to the object of his faith. The Lord is in your midst. He is the mighty one who will save. And this is who Ebed-Melech points us to. And so this is put here for us as his readers and, and even for Judah as they were in exile and would read Jeremiah's words to realize that they were looking to the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong situations to save them. But like Ebed-Melech, they needed to walk in faith. Now, not only did Ebed-Melech experience this deliverance, but Jeremiah got to experience it a second time, as I mentioned earlier, when we... Uh, we, we look in chapter 40 now in verse 1. We see that Jeremiah is somehow caught up. The details are omitted, but somehow he ends up in captivity again. And uh, some have suggested that this is the same account. There's just different details here, but the details are too different to accept that interpretation. It's clear these are two different events. And it's not hard to imagine, again, as I mentioned, uh, that how this could have happened with all the chaos and the upheaval, uh, that these exiles were being moved around to be taken off into Persia, that somehow someone didn't know who Jeremiah was, and they grabbed him and, and they threw him in and with the group. So again, the Lord uses the Babylonian captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan, to not only release Jeremiah to freedom, but then he echoes the prophet's message to him, which is very strange sounding as we read this. You almost think you've misread it as you read through it, and you think it's Jeremiah speaking to him, but it is actually Nebuzaradan who is reading this or speaking this in front of the people, and that's the point of this, but to Jeremiah. And the point is that God is showing his sovereignty over even a pagan ruler, a pagan leader. For the Judeans who witnessed this episode and for those who would later read of this, that they should know that this happened not because... This this wasn't by chance. 
This isn't just because the Babylonians were the latest superpower, that they gained enough power to come and take over this. But God was working and superintending, and this all happened according to his will. And this time, the captain of the guard not only gives uh, Jeremiah the freedom to choose where to go, but he even promises that if he wants to go with him, he'll care for him well. And I would imagine this would have been an enticing offer for Jeremiah. Uh, to be cared for by such a leader in Babylon would have been probably a better experience than staying in the land that had been ransacked by war. But Jeremiah remains. He remains with the people to serve as God's prophet to them. He's sent back to Gedaliah once again. This time he's given provisions and a gift, another remarkable act of God's kindness to him. And there he remained with the people of the land. And as the dust settled from the assault, Gedaliah is now named the governor in the land. So there were those who were left strategically, the the poor who were given the fields and the vineyards to care for them. We see also refugees, those who were scattered about, who weren't captured. They didn't have all the roadways and the byways that we have and infrastructure. So there were lots of little pockets. And the same was true of of men in the army who had gone out and fought and gotten uh, separated. And so they all end up coming back. And there are, is a list of, of men pro, uh, provided for in, in verse 8 that, that describes who these men were, names that I butchered for you. Uh, some of these are going to play a significant role in the text that we'll look at next week. But for now, Gedaliah is the governor, and he serves to be a peacemaker. He serves to, to establish the people there and, and to be a go-between between the people of Judah and the occupiers. And he says to them, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. And so the, he, he, he intends to serve the people by submitting to the occupying force. He recognizes they're in no position to resist. The best thing for them to do is, in a sense, regroup, to, 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 to get busy, to focus Let's, let's gather the food that we need. Winter's coming. It would have been fall at this point or fall would have been approaching. Let's gather the harvest of what's here that we can have food through the winter. And uh, again, we see the refugees join in. And verse 12 closes this out saying that they gathered wine and summer fruits in abundance. The upheaval, the chaos, the shock uh, that the people were in at this point, the people of Judah as their world had been turned upside down, shouldn't have been so shocking. Jeremiah had told them this is what would happen. Most of the people were carried off into exile, but there were those who remained. They regrouped. They focused on uh, developing what would be their new normal. But the story of God's unfolding redemption is far from over. One day, this discipline would be removed, and God would restore the people to the land. But this was not their ultimate hope. Being restored to the land wasn't what they really needed. Their earthly prosperity wasn't their ultimate need. The throne of David was now empty. The temple was gone, destroyed. Yet the God whose word never fails was continually at work to set the stage for ultimate redemption. In a few centuries, the true king of Israel would come, who would be born and bring with him a kingdom that would never end. A kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom not of brick and mortar. He would come born as a man. Born under the law. To fulfill the law through his obedience. And then through his death on the cross, he would open the way for men and women 
of every nation, tribe, and tongue to come and to worship the true God. Entrance into this kingdom is not by flesh and blood. We're not born into it. It's not by our good works or obedience, but it's through faith in Christ Jesus alone. The one who spoke through Jeremiah and called Judah to repentance, who promised judgment if she wouldn't repent, and then brought that promised judgment on them, has now spoken to us through his son. And he has laid upon him the iniquity of us all so that the judgment we deserve has fallen on Jesus. As we look back at the events in Jeremiah's life and ministry, one thing is especially clear. God's word is sure. He keeps all of his promises. And so as we look at the word, even these difficult passages that we might come to and will come to in our Bible reading plan, unless you read the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's not as difficult. You can get with Zach on that. But these difficult passages and these difficult texts that are hard to believe, some of the promises are hard to believe. We can be assured that they stand because we can look back and see that God has kept every word that he's promised. It's true of our salvation. 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Father or the Son has the Father also. It's true in our redemption, but it's also true in our growth in grace, our sanctification. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We can trust the Word of God and obey Him with full confidence that He is at work within us to complete what He began. Just as the Word of God was fulfilled in Jeremiah's day, so will these and all the promises of God come to pass for us. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Jerusalem fell according to the sure word of the Lord. But as the prophet Isaiah spoke, we who have trusted Christ have been brought into a new city, an everlasting city whose walls will never be broken. Isaiah says this, We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Father, would you cause us to know and be assured that you are a rock, a fortress. You are one who will never be shaken. And because this is who you are, your word stands forever. And so when we are tempted to doubt the truth of your word, the promises of your word, the commands of your word. When we think that we know better, would you convict and draw us to repent and then open our eyes that we might see that your word is good, that we might taste and see and know that you are good. Lord, would you increase our faith and would you give us a love to know uh, you through your revealed word? But Lord, may it never never become an, an academic exercise. May it not simply be about gaining knowledge 
But Lord, may it be to the end that we grow in our relationship with you, that we trust you and we love you more. And then the evidence of that, Lord, would you produce in us a fruit that is pleasing in your sight, that would be an aroma, that is a testimony for others to see, we pray. We commit our ways to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.